This morning we'll be in Psalm chapter 11. We'll be in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, you can use the table of contents. Look up the book of Psalm. We'll be in chapter 11. I'll give you some time uh, to turn there. When you have it, say amen. That was quick. So I'm going to ask that you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. And it reads this way. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You can have a seat. Thanks, Tony. I want to speak to you this morning from this theme, safety in the storm. Safety in the storm. Let us look to the Lord in prayer this morning so that he might give us help in understanding his word this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for the fact that we can open up your word. And we know that every time your word is open, you speak to us. So, Father, I pray that you would remove any distractions. I pray that we would be attentive to what you have to say to us today. And I pray that we would receive it for what it really is, and that is truth. I pray that this truth would change us, that we wouldn't leave here the same way that we came, but that we would be transformed, that we would hide your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Early morning of August 29th, 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast of the United States. Now, the day before the storm, the mayor of New Orleans, Ray Nagin, issued the city's first ever mandatory evacuation order. Now, the force of the storm overwhelmed the levees, which led to flooding. Nearly 80% of the city were under some quantity of water. Many people scrambled for safety as they climbed the attics, rooftops, some saw for uh, shelter in the nearby New Orleans Superdome that that housed uh, thousands of people. I remember watching the news coverage during that time, and it it was a terrible sight to see. The damage that the storm had caused, people lost their lives. And I always thought, that, man, if, if, I was living, if I was living in New Orleans at the time, what would I, what, what, what would I, have, I have done? And in all likelihood, I think I would have done the same thing as everyone else, either stayed at home and tried to wait out the storm, 
or even evacuated and tried to make it to the New Orleans Superdome. You see, when there's a threat of danger or trouble, the human response is to seek for refuge. When you think of refuge, you think of security. You think of shelter. You think of safety. You think of a defense. A refuge is something or someone that provides recourse in a difficult time when you're in trouble. You see, because of sin, we live in this broken and fallen world. And as a result, we often find ourselves in various trials and afflictions. And these trials and afflictions, they they leave us uh, filled with fear and, and panic, discomfort, pain. The storms of life leave us vulnerable. They leave us longing for refuge. During difficult times, where do you look for refuge? Where do you look for safety? We'll be in Psalm 11 this morning, and this text was written by King David. At the time the psalm was written, it's obvious that David found himself in a crisis of some sort. It appears that David was being hunted. His life was in danger. But despite his troubles, I want us to see where David's confidence lies. Look at verse 1. David says, in the Lord I take refuge. Can't you see his confidence in God here? It just jumps off the page. You know, if social media was a thing back back during that time, if, if David had a Facebook account, you know on Facebook where it says, what's on your mind? I can see David posting these words. In the Lord, I take refuge. I find it amazing that David seems to be at such peace during the time when he was troubled, when he was afflicted. You know, when we suffer as Christians and maintain our our trust in God, he gives us a peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And this peace guards our hearts and minds. When we suffer well for Christ's sake, the world is baffled. They are confused. Brothers and sisters, suffering is such a, is such a powerful witness to God's glory. I think our non-Christian friends, co-workers, family members, when they see us suffering, they probably question to themselves, why hasn't this brother or sister lost their mind? Like, look at all that they're going through. How are they keeping it all together? They, they just received this devastating news, and they're still keeping it together. The reason for the hope that we have as Christians is found in verse 1 of our text. Why did David seem to be at peace? Where does David's confidence lie? It's in God. Again, David says in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. You see, David was committed to trusting in God, no matter what. In the second part of verse 1, David says, he says this, In the Lord I take refuge. In the second part of verse 1, he says, I'm sorry, in the second part of verse 1, David was offered some bad advice from his friends, and they wanted him to abandon his trust in God. They wanted David to neglect the great duty of trusting in God. You know, sometimes our friends, they can have the best intentions, but they will give us some terrible advice. 
Listen to what it says. It says this. He, he recounts the advice. It says, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Look, any advice that discourages us from 100% faith in God is terrible advice. It's not to be listened to. It's not to be entertained. In fact, it's foolish and evil. David is outraged that they would even suggest something so harmful. They liken David to a bird. When you think of a bird in most cases, you think of a defenseless animal that flies away in the face of danger. Birds don't stand at ground right, when, when danger is approaching. They, they, they flee. Now, to be clear, sometimes it's necessary for us to flee. The Bible calls us to flee youthful lusts. Joseph fled when he was tempted by Potiphar. But obviously, David's situation was a little different. Fleeing, in this case, would have made David compromise his faith in God. It would have made David distrust God. We see the word mountain mentioned here. In some cases throughout the Bible, a mountain symbolizes stability and and, and safety, a place of refuge. David is being tempted to distrust God. His friends are suggesting that he should look for refuge apart from God. They say to David, look, man, God can't protect you. He can't deliver you. It's not wise to keep trusting in him. I wonder who among us this morning is taking heed to this kind of unwise counsel. What voices are you listening to? Are you being directed toward the way of God? Or are you being influenced to turn away from God? Church, that's why it's so important that we encourage each other in the faith. And to do that, we have to be creatures of the word. We have to daily find ourselves in the scriptures every single day so that we can speak truth to each other. In verses 2 and 3, his friends, they make sort of an argument as to why David should abandon his trust in God. They direct David to the hopelessness of his situation. They try to get David to walk by sight and not by faith. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on with David, but it's obvious that he was in some real danger. He was being persecuted. Look at the imagery here in verse 2. It says this, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Verse 3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let me just say this, brothers and sisters. If you desire to live a life of faith in Jesus Christ, if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Make no mistakes about it. You will be persecuted. Now look closely at the argument that his friends are making. I'm going to sum it up this way. David, your situation is dangerous. The wicked don't care about your faith in God. They have no respect for God's people or God's law. David, don't you see all the trouble that God's people suffer in this world? The wicked are winning, and they're getting away with their wickedness. God doesn't see your plight. So, David, what what, what can you do when God is not there to help you? What hope and security do you have 
in this hopeless situation that you find yourself in. Look, church, this is the advice of fear and not faith. And you see, during times of great peril, we are tempted to lack trust in God. We look for refuge in everything but God. Maybe for you, refuge is found in a certain person, a place, a memory, a substance, an opinion, or a way of being. Some people look for refuge in wealth, materialism, greed, marriage, singleness, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, pleasure, comfort, leisure. Maybe refuge for you is found in anger, lashing out at people. Maybe it's pride. Could it be you look to your own achievements, your good works, your reputation for refuge? Oh, brothers and sisters, these things may keep us afloat for a time. These things may even numb the pain, but these things will never provide a permanent solace from the storms of life. These things are simply a stopgap that will fall apart. Church, what are you tempted to? What are you tempted to escape during times of trouble? Where's your security found? The main idea I think Psalm 11 communicates to us this morning is this. When the storms of life overwhelm us, we have to overcome the temptation to distrust God. Let me repeat that. When the storms of life overwhelm us, we must overcome the temptation to distrust God. And just how do we overcome this temptation? It's simple. Trust God. Trust God. Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in a crisis. You're in the midst of some type of affliction. As a result, this, have, this has caused you to grow uh, weak spiritually. You feel like giving up. You feel like abandoning your duty to trust in the Lord. Well, I want to spend a few moments talking to you, encouraging you from God's word found in Psalm 11. I think David gives us reasons here why we can trust God. And I want to share those reasons with you this morning. My question for you is this. Will you persevere in the face of affliction. Whatever it is that is troubling you, will you trust God with it? He's inviting us this morning to put our trust in him, church. Trust him. So the first reason I see here is this. God is on his throne. In other, word, in other words, God is in control. If you've been watching the... Uh, the Baltimore Ravens this year. Now, look, I wrote this illustration before they lost Thursday, okay? <laughs> but I'm going to keep it. If you've been watching them this year, you've witnessed their ability to overcome a lot of adversity and obstacles thus far. Right? Before the season started, they lost both their running backs. They lost a defensive back, one of their starters. They've had problems on the offensive line defensive line. They've been behind in a lot of games this year. But no matter how chaotic things have been this year, 
no matter how many points they've trailed, there seems to be a peace about this team. They never seem to worry. And I think it's, I think it's due to the fact of who their leader is. You see, Lamar Jackson, right, the quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens, he seems to possess a certain poise. It always seemed like he's in control, especially during all the chaos. And I think this becomes infectious for the whole team because they're, they're confident going into any game that they can win any game. No matter how many points they fall behind, they feel like they can come back and win that game. Didn't happen Thursday, but let's take Thursday out of it. So far, they, you know, they, they, they feel confident they can come back. My point is this. Saints, don't you know we serve a God that is in control? A God who is always on his throne. Look at verse 4 of our text. It says this. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. David is resolved to trust in God because he knows that God is on his throne. He knows that God is in control. This was the source of David's confidence. You see, God rules and reigns over all. His kingdom endures forever. While, while there may be chaos, confusion on earth, injustice, pandemics, war, famine, natural disasters, terrorism, and all types of evil, yet we can take heart that the God who is in heaven is in control. This God is in total control. Church, our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. During times of trouble, it's so easy to think that God is not in control. We often think that God has left his throne. But let me tell you, God is in control when your marriage is not going well, when, you, when your children are, are rebelling, when your finances are out of order, when your life hasn't turned out the way you envision, when you're stuck at a job that you hate, when you're alone, when you're sick, when you're tired. I can go on and on, and we will come to the same conclusion that God is in control. You see, nothing that happens in this world happens by chance. Everything that happens has been ordained by God. As one theologian puts it, he says this. This is good. He that sits in heaven orders these earthly affairs according to the eternal counsel of his will. It is that almighty hand that holds the stern of this tossed vessel and steers it in that course which he knows best. It is not for us that are passengers to meddle with the compass. Let that all skillful pilot alone with his own work. He knows every rock and shelf that may endanger it and can cut the proudest billow that threatens it with ease. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good. Church, God knows what he's on. He's on his throne. Therefore, we can be confident in God. Now, one may draw the conclusion, one may, one may draw the conclusion that because God is so transcendent, because God's throne is in heaven and we're down here on earth, that somehow that supports the false idea that God is not concerned with what goes on down here on earth. Some may think, well, he's not concerned with my, my little old insignificant life. He's not concerned when I suffer. 
And this brings me to my second point of, of why we can trust God. And this is why David had confidence in God. And it is this. God sees. He sees. You see, with the invention of the microscope, scientists have been able to closely examine the smallest particles, objects, cells, things of that nature, things that we otherwise would miss with the, with the naked eye. And scientists have been better able to serve this world because of the knowledge they possess as a result of their closeful examination of things. Well, I think we would all agree that God sees better than a microscope. Amen? God brings all things under scrutiny. Everything is under the divine eye. Second part of verse 4 says this, His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. David could trust that God was a refuge for him because he knew that although God was in heaven, he was still able to see David's situation. God's view is not obscured in any way or by anything. You know, some will have you to believe that God is this detached deity, that God has just left us out to figure out things on our own, that he's not concerned with the state of this world, that he's not concerned with the pain that we endure. And when we believe these false ideas about God, it leads us to think ill of God. Oh, church, let us be reminded this morning that God sees you. Yeah. He sees you. And this means that he cares yeah. about you. God saw how the Israelites were oppressed in Egypt, and he delivered them. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, says this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. He saw how a servant girl by the name of Hagar was mistreated by Sarah, and God came to visit her. And listen to the conclusion that she draws after her encounter with God. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, you are a God who sees. You may feel overlooked at work. You may be a victim of abuse. You may be struggling to care for an elderly parent or grandparent. You may be struggling with a physical or mental condition. You may be struggling through life in general. Well, I'm here to tell you that God sees. He sees you. He cares for you. Trust him. David's advisors thought that God didn't see all that was going on with David's situation. They saw that the wicked were prospering. They probably thought to themselves that God must not be able to see because he, he's not doing anything about the situation. Listen to that logic. If God sees and cares like you say, David, why is evil present? Why are the foundations that uphold a just society being destroyed by the wicked? You see, David rejected that logic. And he found confidence in the fact that God was on his throne and that he sees and that he cares. You know, David, he goes on, he gives us a third reason for his confidence in God. And it's found in verses 5 and 6. You see, David understood something about God's purposes and suffering. And this brings us to my third point. David understood this, 
that the Lord tests his people but judges the wicked. The Lord will test his people but judge the wicked. It says in verses 5 through 6, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. If you ever read through the Psalms before, you see, you've probably noticed this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. There's a big difference between how God treats his people, his righteous people, and how he treats the wicked, those that are not his people. David found security in the truth that God was using his present suffering to test him. I've been reading through uh, the book of Genesis lately, and I recently read uh, the story of Joseph. Now, just to remind you, Genesis is a historical narrative, meaning the accounts that we find in Genesis are those things are part of the history of this world. And I believe, I think David was familiar with the story of Joseph. Back in Genesis, for those of you who are not familiar with this story, back in Genesis, Joseph, he was mistreated by his brothers. Right? They, they hated him so much that they even wanted to kill him. But one of the brothers was like, no, well, we, we can't do that. Let's just, you know, sell him as a slave. So they come up with this plan to sell him as a slave to Egypt. So he ends up in Egypt alone, away from his family. He then finds himself in prison because he was falsely accused by part of his wife. But you see, in Joseph's suffering, God was with him. Yeah. And that's why he prospered, because God was with him. God had a purpose so Joseph, he rose in rank in Egypt. He became the second in command to Pharaoh. At the end of the story, God reunites him with his brothers. Now listen to what Joseph realized about God's purposes. And I think it's the same thing that David concludes here in Psalm 11. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. And this comes after Jacob, his father died. And his brothers think that, oh, okay, now is the time for Joseph to Get us back for what we did. But listen to what he says. It says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God used Joseph's suffering to save many lives. If Joseph wasn't sent to Egypt, him and his family would have probably died because the famine that hit the land was so severe. But he goes to Egypt, not by the ideal means, but nonetheless, God was with him, and he was able to provide food for his family and keep them alive. So we can conclude that God used suffering for Joseph's good. God used David's trial for his good. That is what is meant here in verse 5 of our text. It says, the Lord tests the righteous. Now, just why does God test his people? Well, you know, in the New Testament, Peter, he gives us an answer to that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses trials to test the genuineness of our faith. When a Christian comes through a trial, still trusting in the Lord, that individual is assured that his or her faith is genuine. You see, just as gold goes through the fire to remove any impurities, so does God send his children through the fires of afflictions to sanctify us. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to endure this morning. We must remain steadfast under trials because we're reminded by James that the testing of our faith produced endurance. James says you are considered blessed when you persevere under trial. Brothers and sisters, is your faith genuine? Are you passing the test? David understood this truth that God tests his people. He understood that God used trials for the good of his people. His friends, not so much. They probably said, David, yeah, we hear, we hear all of that about, about, about uh, God using your suffering for good. But what about the wicked, David? Will they go unpunished? Will God keep turning a blind eye to the wickedness that's going on in the land? Well, look how David answers them. He says this, The Lord hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not a typo. God hates the wicked. Because he hates the wicked and their wicked deeds, or you can trust that he will judge them. Look at the imagery being described here in verse 6. It says, Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. That sounds a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. The destruction that God brought uh, brought upon that city in judgment for their wicked ways. Saints, the wicked will fall. All wicked deeds and systems will be dealt with by the Holy One. One day the wicked and all the trouble they cause will be no more. Church, we can trust that God will judge the wicked. Listen to what David says in a later psalm, Psalm 36. He says this in verses 7 through 10. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evil doers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. So God's judgment, it could happen in this life or the life to come. Either way, that's God's business. He will take care of it. David was confident that God would judge the wicked because David knew that God was a righteous God. Look at verse 7. It says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The judge of this earth will always do what is right. So, David, he took refuge in God, or we can say he had confidence in God because, one, he knew God was in control. Two, he knew God saw him and that God cared for him. Three, 
he knew God was testing him and that God would judge the wicked. But lastly, my fourth and final point is this. David believed that God looks upon the righteous with favor. And that's our fourth and final point. David believed that God looks upon the righteous with favor. The last part of verse 7, it says this. The upright, right, meaning the righteous, shall behold his face. Brothers and sisters, I want us to understand that seeing, God, seeing God's face is the equivalent of receiving his blessing. It's the equivalent of being approved by God. It's the opposite of God hiding his face. As the prophet Michael reminds us, he says in Micah chapter 3, verse 4, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. David was confident that despite his hardships, he knew without a shadow of a doubt that God favored him. David had nothing to fear because he was constantly under the care of a righteous God. And this God favors his people. A righteous God that loves his people. Remember, to be upright is to be righteous. Now, this raises a problem for you and me. So on the one hand, we see that those that are righteous will see God, which means his countenance will shine upon us, upon the righteous. But the problem is this. The Bible says that there is no one that is righteous. Not even one. No one seeks for God. No one understands. All have turned aside. Everyone have, has gone to their own way. Can you see the problem that we have as humans? What do you think a righteous God will do to sinners? We are sinners. It's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This righteous God must judge sinners. So we need someone to stand in our place. We need refuge and safety from the storm that is God's wrath, that is God's judgment. Where you see the good news of the gospel is that Jesus stood in the gap. He stood in our place. As he hung on the cross, the Father turned his face away so that his face might be turned toward us so that we will receive the blessing. You see, we are made righteous because of Christ. Everything depends on him. We can't earn God's favor by our works. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the means by which we receive this righteousness that we need to stand before God. And I want us to, to really understand this. I want to be clear. The grounds of our justification is not faith. The grounds of our justification is Christ. It's his person and his work. Faith is how we receive what Christ has done. So the question remains, have you put your trust in Christ? 
Have you fled to Jesus for refuge? Being in Christ is the safe place. Just like Noah and his family passed through the waters of God's judgment during the flood, so it is that those who are in Christ will pass through the waters of God's judgment. May we all be found sane like David. In the Lord, I take refuge. Let me say that one more time. In the Lord, I take refuge. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for being a God that we can trust, for being a God that we can be confident in. When the storms of this world, when they leave us vulnerable, when they leave us seeking for refuge, oh God, give us grace to turn to you, to be confident in you. Father, we know that judgment is coming, and I pray that everyone in this room will be found in Christ on that day. For with Christ, there's safety, there's security, there's shelter. There's a stronghold. There's a defense in Christ Jesus. God, place us in Christ. I pray that our faith would be in him today. The one that is weak here today, may you strengthen them. The one who is not a Christian here today, I pray that they would leave this place believing in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.